1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3 and read all the way through the end of verse 12. God said through Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be given, that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, we praise You for this salvation. We know it can come from no other than from You. And Father, from Your good mercy, Your good loving kindness, Your goodness and kindness toward us, and the act of Your Son to come to earth, to live, to be perfect, to die, and to rise again from the grave to save us. Father, we thank You. There's so much more to praise You about in that salvation. God, I pray that You would teach us in this so that we would continue to praise You and rejoice in what You have done for us and who You are in Jesus' name. Well, again, we are studying this um, blessed, inspired letter from God to Christians who are spread out through the modern country of Turkey. Uh, They're experiencing some cultural pressure against their new beliefs as converts to Christianity. And what is it that sparks that reaction to them? What is it that makes people want to come at them? Well, it's um, their beliefs, and their beliefs that start to be lived out in a life that's different, a different kind of changed life. They're living differently, thinking differently, speaking differently, treating people differently, and they, they see a difference. And so when light comes into darkness... Darkness hides. Darkness doesn't like it much. And darkness is always there hiding, waiting to come back into the room when the light leaves. And that's what is happening in the culture at the time, and that's what's happening in our culture as well. Peter is encouraging them at the beginning of looming legal persecution from the Roman Empire that will be coming very soon. He's encouraging them with the eternally secure truth of the gospel so that they can set their heart and their mind and their energies on that, on who God is and what God has done for them and saving them rather than what's happening around them. We saw in verses 1 and 2, he taught them that they are elect exiles. They have a new homeland, right? A new country that they are citizens of, and it's not anywhere here on earth. 
came about because of God's intimate foreknowledge of them in the Spirit's sanctification of them, setting them apart for obedience to God the Son sprinkled with His blood. We, we looked at all of that truth. So what Peter's doing is helping us to get our chins up, to start looking upward, setting our minds on things above, as Paul would say in Colossians 3, rather than on earthly things. You can't do anything about what's going to happen to you or what's going to happen around you, but you can do anything about where you're looking for your praise of God, where you're looking for your joy or your source of happiness. How do you endure? Well, in verses 3 to 5, you praise God for that eternal salvation that He has worked in you. All praise be to God. Blessed be God because you're born again. And we saw seven truths, seven features that Peter just piles up to explain that salvation in the regeneration, that new life that we have. It's according to God's great mercy. It's to a living hope. It's through the resurrection of Jesus. It's to a perfect inheritance. It's guarded by God's power. We're guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. It's already there. It's already purchased. It's already done. It's just ready. It's ready and waiting for us. So all of that should and does cause us to explode in praise to God, regardless of what's happening around us. Well, then in verses 6 through 9, Peter shows us how to rejoice, how to have real joy and happiness in the middle of difficult times and the trials that are happening. We started looking at five eternal realities for true and lasting happiness, no matter what's happening around us. We saw first from verse 6 that we need to rejoice in our secure salvation. Everything that we saw in verses 3 and through 5 that causes praise to God also causes us to be happy. <laughs> to, to be really, truly, constantly joy-filled and happy. Trials try to draw us away, but God is working in the trials to accomplish His purposes. So rather than being drawn away from Him, we use those times to draw closer to Him. And He's bringing true happiness through that. Temporary things never bring lasting happiness, right? That makes sense. Only lasting things can bring lasting happiness. Secondly, we saw that we need to rejoice while grieving through necessary trials. And we learned and we were reminded that God's not trying to pull the wool over any of our eyes. He's not telling you, come to Jesus and your life will be better. You'll have your best life right now. He's not saying that, is he? He's saying you're going to be grieving through necessary trials. Persecution hurts. Hurt. Trials in general hurt. Some of the grieving through trials can come because... We've tried to find our joy in the things of this earth. But sometimes grieving in trials really does come because trials hurt, because they're so hard. God has made us with emotion and with attachment to other people. And so when, when bad things happen, things hurt, right? But again, our lasting happiness is in the Lord and the salvation that He has caused within us. It's not whether we get through any trial, whether we get any victory. Ultimately, God gets all of the victory. The trials that we endure are actually, in fact, necessary to God's purposes. We looked at Genesis 50, 20. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? You meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant everything to happen. Everything that happened to Joseph, God meant for that to happen. And he meant it for good. Well, part of the good that God brings about is what we saw in verse 7, number 3, that we looked at last week, that we need to rejoice because of our faith and trials. Remember that it is God who provides us our faith. And it is God who proves our faith in trials. He uh, pr uh, purifies our faith, and then He praises our faith. Of all the things, He gives it to us. He proves it. He purifies it. And then at the end, He gives us praise for it, for all that He's done 
And we know, as we looked at that, that all of the praise ultimately goes to Him. Well, that's how we find happiness while we're in this world. This world that's missing so much happiness, so much joy. And anything that can go wrong and all of the happiness that does come and then fades away, our constant joy and happiness is always and ultimately is always going to be found in our eternal salvation because of the gospel. Even when we grieve because of the faith God has given us. Even when we don't feel like going on, right? We, we know that faith is not feeling. Well, that brings us to where we left off last week. <laughs> that was all review over the last few weeks and then last week. Um, to finish up these verses, uh, 6 through 9, number 4, we need to rejoice because of our relationship with Jesus. You know, it's hard to find joy and happiness when we're being persecuted, when, when things are difficult, when we're struggling but we have joy in the truth that we've been looking at and in the person who purchased for us our salvation, the person of Jesus, the living Word of God. Everything that we're talking about brings us joy, but, but really the, the ultimate of it is, is that we have a relationship with the God of the universe who formed everything by the power of His Word. You haven't seen Him. You've never seen Him, but you love Him. You still can't see him, you still don't see him, but you believe in him, Peter says. You put your trust, your confidence in him for today and for your eternity. It's not feeling focused, but it's factual and it is experiential. A relationship with this Jesus because he's alive. And we looked at it last week briefly, but that, the essence here is that you know, he, at the revelation of Jesus, that's, that's what's going to be happening. That's what we're looking forward to is that we have a relationship with Jesus now, and even as the world doubts and, and denies Jesus, he is alive, he is real, and one day he will be revealed, shown to be real as we know that he is. Amen. You love him and believe, which leads to rejoicing, the same word as above. The rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible. You can't, even, you can't even describe the joy that we have in our relationship with Jesus. Now, sometimes we forget that, but this is what's real and true in our relationship with the Lord. It's not learning everything that we need to learn and then just memorizing a bunch of facts and trying to live life based on facts and memories, right? Those truths lead to a relationship the glory that comes, the greatness that's there. The joy can't be put into words because of our relationship. Where is this kind of happiness? Where, where is this possible? It's in knowing Jesus. This is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3. He said, I, I count everything as a loss for the sake of Christ, the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's where all of our hope and all of our joy is. He says in, in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in your works always. Is that what he says in Philippians 4.4? 4, those of us who know that verse, rejoice in the world as much as you can until you can't anymore. No, he says rejoice in the Lord always, right? It's in the Lord. That's where our, our hope and joy is. 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. Why? Well, because he says, for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. We looked briefly at, uh, at Luke. You remember the 72 that Jesus sent out? He gave them an amazing ministry of casting out demons and preaching, and, and they came back to Jesus, and they were so excited. Jesus, this, the demons were subject to us in your name, and Jesus says, don't get all excited about that. 
get excited, rejoice because your names are written in heaven because of Jesus. You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, if I could just see him, I could have a better relationship. If I, if I could just see him, if I could get a vision of him, if I could get just a, a glimpse of Jesus. But we've talked about this before. Your eyes do not have the right filter. The right filter for truth that brings belief is not found in our eyesight. It, it's in our ears. You remember, if you're, it's your ears that hear the truth. Think about Peter, the one who wrote this. How much time did he see Jesus? How much time did he spend with Jesus? Three and a half years. He saw Jesus every day. And then at the, at the biggest trial that he had in his entire life, arguably, but you know, right there as Jesus is in trial, in his trials, and, and they accuse Peter of knowing Jesus, seeing Jesus didn't help Peter at all. Seeing him no, makes you no better off. It is this love that, that is an act of the will that chooses Jesus rather than self, that chooses Jesus over the world, and faith, which is trust, and belief in him, that's what brings the rejoicing, the inexpressible kind of joy in the relationship with Jesus through his word. That's what Peter had rejected and left out. You remember as we studied that in Mark, he he forgot all of what Jesus said. He said, I can handle it, right? Because I've seen Jesus. Jesus actually tells us in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5 says we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't have to see Jesus to know him, to have a relationship with him. And we rejoice in the relationship that we do have in him. But you know, that that relationship that we're going to have with Jesus, that we have with Jesus, is going to last forever. One day we will get to see him in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We get to see Jesus. And you know what's being said at that time? Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It's a forever rejoicing in our relationship with Christ. We get to start that now. In fact, in Revelation 21, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But here's what I want us to understand. Here's what I want us to think about. When we get to heaven, we're going to be with Jesus all the time. We're going to rejoice with him. And it's just going to be this wonderful time of rejoicing. But do you know what's going to be missing there? And this, this is to take nothing away from heaven and being there in glory with God. But what's missing there is the opportunity that we have right now today to rejoice in him despite the sin despite the trials, despite the suffering. See, when we get to heaven, all of that's going to be removed, and then we just get to be perfect in our praise for the perfect God. But this is our opportunity to praise Him in the middle of while we are yet sinners, (laughs) while we're still in the middle of the cursed world and in our flesh that's weak. This is our opportunity to do that, and it's a short amount of time compared to eternity. So, so take the time now to begin rejoicing in your Lord, your, your Lord who saved you and loves you and is going to come back for you. Take that opportunity now. Finally, from verses 6 through 9, we need to rejoice because of our existing and our enduring salvation. Our enduring salvation. He says, obtaining what your um, verse 10 here, obtaining the outcome of your faith. Here's what we look to now and forever, our salvation. That word obtaining means to provide for. It's a transfer of something that you get, and it's in the present participle. We are now obtaining. What is it that we're now getting that's being transferred to us right now, the goal of our faith, the end result, which is 
the salvation of our soul. The reason for faith and the reason for faith that holds on through difficulty. The deliverance of your soul, your, your whole self. God will is saving you now. He will save you in the future. He has saved you in the past if you know the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 10, 35, you've got those verses in your notes. Um, I wanted to read those, but I don't want to take away time from, from our next passage. But Hebrews 10, 35, and, and the verses after that lead up to Hebrews 11, 1, where we understand what faith is. And it gives the context for, for what he's saying, where faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But we're reminded that our, our salvation is past, present, and future. And this is what we rejoice in. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it is by grace. You have been saved in the past, right? 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says to those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. That's present right now. And future, Romans 5, 9, much more shall we be saved by him who has justified us by his blood. If you're not full of joy, if, if, you're, if you go through life and you're, you're sad more often than you're happy, that you're, you're not finding a lot of joy, source for happiness and, and constant and lasting joy, maybe we need to look somewhere else than where we've been looking. We can look to the salvation that God has given us. Our application from last week was that trials are necessary when God wills, right? But we know the one who brings them and whose purposes will succeed in them and who saved, saves, and will save. Well, that brings us to our final verses in chapter 1, this first section that we've been looking at in, in chapter 1. And the question that we may have now at this point is, after going through all of that, after finding out that there is praise to God in our salvation and joy to God and in, in, in ourselves because of the salvation that He's given us, how is it possible to find so much of that in the gospel? How, how is it, why would we be able to praise God and why would we have so much joy over being born again? It's because of the enduring value of this salvation. The, the surpassing worth of this salvation. And for our purposes, we're going to use worth and value as synonyms. But what is the most valuable thing to you? That's, what, that's what's going to capture your attention and maintain your attention. What's most valuable to you? We lived across the street from a man who, whose value, whose highest valued item was his Corvette. <laughs> you knew when the man was home because his garage door was open and he was, he was washing the car. He was, he was working on the car. He was polishing the car, vacuuming it, cleaning it, pouring over it, coddling over it, caring for it. His life was the car. The only time that stopped was when he was not home or when he and his wife had a divorce and he took the car. <laughs> that, was the, that was his most valuable possession. Salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is valuable above anything that we can imagine or think of or have on this earth. Maybe we don't see it that way sometimes. Maybe we don't see, and maybe it's become too familiar to us. You know, we talk about it every time we get together, praise God. We sing about it. We pray about it. We pray for other people about it. But don't let the familiarity of the gospel devalue it. It is a priceless treasure. It's worth more than anything else. Don't devalue it just by being familiar with it. 
two years ago, in, in June of 2019, a woman in her, six, in her 90s, excuse me, this is a lady in her 90s in northern France, decided to sell her house. The house had been built in the 1960s, and she'd lived there for almost 60 years. She didn't want to move all of the stuff that had accumulated after 60 years. Have you been there? You don't want to move everything that you've got. So she had an appraiser come into her home and appraise everything that she had, and whatever was worth anything, she would move, and everything else she would just throw away. She was in her 90s. What is she going to do with it, right? So as the appraiser entered her home, he immediately noticed an 8-inch by 10-inch painting that was hanging in her kitchen. He asked her about that. She said, I I don't know. It's just a painting. It's been been there for as long as the house is. I think it was there when I moved in. I think it's Russian or something. It's not worth anything. It's just always been there. It's just been hanging around the whole time. Nobody really even notices it much anymore. Well, he disagreed. He took the painting down, sent it away for testing. In the meantime, all of her belongings of any worth were sold at auction for 6,000 euros, a little bit more than $7,000. Everything she had that was of any worth, $7,000. The rest was thrown away. In testing, the painting was discovered to be actually Italian, not Russian, and it was by an artist named Cimabue from the 13th century, the 1200s. <laughs> it's called Christ Mocked, and it depicts Jesus being mocked during his trials. At auction, it sold for over $29 million. <laughs> it's just always been there. It's not worth anything. It's just sitting there on the wall, right? Just because something is there and familiar to us doesn't mean that it's not the most valuable, priceless truth. How do we value the gospel? There are certain things that we use for determining value or worth of an item. And debatably, there are eight factors that we use for, de- for determining how much something is worth. There are exceptions to these, right? The first one is rarity, how rare an item is. Sometimes things are rare because they were just, they shouldn't have never been made to begin with, right? And you just can't find them anymore and you shouldn't, just leave it alone. But sometimes rarity will impact, increase the value of an item. Second is age. How old is it? Not always, but again, sometimes the age will help increase the value. Number three is condition. What condition is it in, right? Can you barely tell what it is because it's just a ball of rust? You know, that's probably not going to be worth much, but... The, the, the condition, including any work to repair it or restore it, that can impact an item's value. Number four is the manufacturer who made it, including the quality. Was it made with quality by that manufacturer? Number five, the place of origin. Where was it made? And we understand that this can impact value, and we understand that sometimes it can be confusing because a vase made in China at the dollar store is <laughs> not the same thing as a vase made in China in the Ming Dynasty. So place of origin can, and sometimes does, impact the value of an item. Number six is the story. Not just who made it, but who had it, who owned it, who used it. Is there an autograph on it? You know, what's the story attached with it? The seventh factor that can impact value is uniqueness. Not just rarity, but, you know, there may be a million of these things, but this one stands alone. It stands apart in some way. It's got a wow factor, right, or, or something. Finally, the eighth determining factor, and this one really, it all comes down to the market. What is anybody willing to pay for it, right? It doesn't matter if it meets everything else. If nobody wants it, (laughs) it's not worth anything, right? So those are some of the factors that influence the value of an item. But I want to submit to you, I want to make the case for you this morning that the gospel fulfills every one of those and more in being the most valuable thing in our life.
It's going to meet every one of those. And Peter describes how in verses 10 through 12. Because of the value of what God has done, is doing, and will do, there is more than enough to keep us occupied in praising God and rejoicing while we're on this earth. And more than enough to keep us occupied for all of eternity in praising God and learning what He's done for us. So four highlights of our salvation's value. The, the enduring value of the salvation. Number one, our salvation is priceless because of its prophesied grace, verse 10. The prophesied grace. He says concerning this salvation, still talking about the same thing, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. The prophets delivered the message that God gave them to deliver. They were faithful to deliver that message, but many times they didn't understand it fully. They didn't really know what they were talking about. They didn't know when it was going to happen or how it was going to happen. They were searching. They were investigating to find answers. The words here, he just piles them up. Investigate diligently and scrutinize. They were exerting considerable effort and care in learning what God was saying and the prophecies that they were giving to people about the grace that was to be ours. To them, there was nothing else worthy of their time. They would give the message, they'd write it down, and then they'd say, now I need to figure out what this means. They they prophesied it, they they read about it, they studied God's grace. And yes, there's God's grace in the Old Testament, in the prophecies of the Old Testament. In Genesis 16, God is El Roy, the God who sees. He is the God who hears. That's what Ishmael means, the God who hears. And Ishmael And Hagar were not the chosen line, but God was still gracious. He's the God who still sees and the God who still hears and cares. Hundreds of years later, after the Exodus, you remember that God passed before Moses and he he proclaimed his name in, in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is amazing. I mean, everybody that sinned, he's going to by no means clear the guilty. And yet he's gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. How does this work? How, How does this work itself out. How is God going to do this? He is merciful and gracious. A thousand years later, as the people return after the exile in in Nehemiah, he teaches the people again how gracious and merciful God is. In Nehemiah 9, he says says that the people, God, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck in our vernacular. You know, they're hard-headed, right? They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. This is the Old Testament, right? This is the Old Testament God who is abounding in mercy and love and kindness and forgiving sins. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's been that way from the beginning. He stays that way now. He's going to be that way forever. But they spoke those words and they studied those words and they said, you know, how's this going to work? Later on, other prophecies said there's, there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come, who's going to, who's going to enact everything that God has said, he's going to fulfill everything that God has said, and he's going to save us. And, and he's going to suffer and die. But he's also a Messiah who's going to reign and bring forgiveness. And how does this work? And they studied and they studied and they didn't stop studying, trying to figure out what this was going to be, how it was going to work out. 
through all the bad kings, the execution of the prophets, the, the persecutions, the trials, everything, even up to the Roman control of their, of their country, they held on to God's prophecies about His grace that was coming in the Messiah. Micah 7 asks, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, not us. That we deserve, what we deserve is him being, his treading all over us. But he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is the God of grace. He will do all of this. When? How is he going to do this? And then, as they studied, they saw that God promised this for Gentiles too. Not just for Jewish people in, in Isaiah 45, 22. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. What an amazing God this is. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is an amazing, gracious God because what we deserve is for him to trample us because of our iniquities. But he's going to trample our iniquities underfoot. How is this going to happen? God's grace is coming, even to the Gentiles. How? How do, we, how do we explain this? What this points to is the priceless value of rarity. Remember that, that one of those determining factors of value is, is how rare an item is. Where can you find this kind of grace of God? You can't find it within yourself. You can't find it within another person. You can't find it in the world anywhere else. The grace of God that the prophets prophesied about is something that is not found in humanity. The, the happiness and the joy and the praise and salvation cannot be found here. This is something that's so rare because it doesn't exist here. Solomon searched for it in Ecclesiastes. I, I, I love reading through Ecclesiastes. Read chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. Solomon tries everything you could ever think of trying to find salvation and joy and, and happiness and contentment somewhere else. He, he tried laughter, earthly pleasure, entertainment, alcohol, material things, wealth. At the time, that was not just money, but herds and flocks and slaves and, and sex and entertainment and anything and everything he ever wanted and ever could try. He had all the money in the world and he had all the time to do anything with, and he tried everything. He says, don't try it. It's all worthless. It's vanity. It's empty. I tried it all. You can't find it here. It's so rare that Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There's nothing here that will save us. And nothing within ourselves. That makes salvation priceless because we can't do it. We can't make it. And we can't find it here. But it's not just the rarity of it. It's the manufacturer, Right? The manufacture of it that makes it valuable and priceless. Not only does Peter say that the prophets prophesied about it because it wasn't to be found here, he says they prophesied because prophecy comes from God, <laughs> right? So it was not just the salvation that came from God, it was finding out about it and, and what to study and, and all the information about it. They were totally, and we are totally dependent on God, not man, for the information about it and for the, the, the substance of it, what makes it up, totally dependent on God to bring it and make it and do it and, and enact it for us. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1, that since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that we looked at in the hall of faith in, in chapter 11 last week, right? He says, because we're surrounded by that great cloud, let us lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He thought it up. He authored it. He founded it. He, he made it. He did it all. He perfected it. He completed it. He did everything. There is joy and there is pr- and, and praise in salvation that is to be valued above everything else because it's so rare and because of the manufacturer. It's not found anywhere else. Number two, our salvation is priceless because of its predicted sufferings and glories of verse 11. The predicted sufferings and glories. The prophets, verse 11 continues, continually search using yet another word for for inquiring, examining, investigating to find out the when and the who. The when and who and how. Why didn't they know? (laughs) They were the ones prophesying it, right? They were the ones God was using to speak forth His word. Why didn't they know? Because it didn't originate with them. It didn't come up from them within their own minds. It came from the Spirit of Christ who predicted what was to come. Predicted here doesn't mean, uh, I think it'll be windy today, (laughs) or sunny, or rainy, or whatever. This is prediction with full assurance. This is what's going to happen. That's the word for prediction here. They were certain of God's plan. What they were uncertain of was how it was going to work out, how he was going to do it. But that's important to understand. We need to be careful because they experienced the grace of God. They did have the message they had to know God's grace because they were sinners like we are. They still needed to be forgiven. He, at the end of Hebrews 11 that we looked at, it, it says they were saved, those who believed. But what they were studying was the information they had and the information they were missing for how God was going to do this salvation, how he's going to bring it about. So they were studying the word of God to understand what he was going to do. We, brothers and sisters, are in the same, similar place. We aren't alive while Jesus is alive. We're not here to see when Jesus comes and lives his perfect life and dies on the cross right in front of us and then rises again. We're in the same place where we depend on the word of God, studying it to find out about this grace of God that is ours. The difference is that we know how God has provided it, but we have to be just as careful in our study of the word as the Old Testament prophets were who were trying to figure out how it was going to happen. The effect is the same on us as it was for them, studying his word to discover the amazing truths of this salvation. The Old Testament predicted it. The New Testament has revealed it, along with the implications of what it means. (laughs) You may remember from our study in Mark, Jesus said that the the sufferings that he had to endure. He, He said, I have to endure these. These are coming, and it's necessary. You remember as we studied that, He said multiple times he'd have to suffer and be humiliated. He would have to die. He would have to rise again. He would be executed. He'd be struck on the head. This is all prophesied in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus was saying. This all has to happen. This is necessary. Because God said so in the Old Testament and it's going to happen. He'd have to give his hands and feet. They would be pierced. He would be given gall and and vinegar or sour wine to drink. He'd be beaten and spat on. He'd be betrayed by a close friend. He was despised and rejected. He was accused but silent and more. There were so many prophecies in the Old Testament of all of the sufferings that were predicted of Christ. Yet in all the glories, he was to swallow up death and victory. He was to be the I am in the Old Testament as he was revealed in the New Testament. He was the promised redeemer, the son of God, the firstborn over all creation, never changing, everlasting, Emmanuel, God with us. The prince of peace, the righteous branch, his throne is to be established forever. 
so many more things that were prophesied about the glories of Jesus when he came. All of that and much more was fulfilled in the New Testament. Why is this so valuable? It points to the precious God-given reality of it all. I've got a book at home on my desk that has a chart with 100 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. We've talked about this before, but if you just take eight prophecies... Now, some people have lists of like over 400 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But if you just take eight and you said, what's the probability that somebody could just randomly fulfill eight of the Old Testament prophecies, the chance of that happening is one in one times 10 to the 17th power. I don't even know what that means, right? (laughs) I mean, that's 17 zeros after the 10, but okay, that's nice. Here's the chance of that. Here's what it would take, okay? If you took silver dollars... Enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep and you marked one of them and threw it into that pile and said, now somebody randomly pick one out and see if you find it. That's the chance of of somebody randomly fulfilling eight prophecies of the Old Testament as Jesus did. The chart that I have has a hundred. Like I said, some have over 400 one person went so far as to say, look, what if, he, what if he fulfilled 48? What kind of number would that look like? <laughs> it's 1 and 1 times 10 to the 157th power. I mean, it's just, we don't have a word for numbers like that except impossible, right? It's impossible to accidentally fulfill even 48 prophecies. The amazing accuracy of these prophecies has led many people to say, I don't have any other answer than that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Lord. The predicted sufferings and glories were fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. The kind of glories that he's going to share with us. Paul says the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. Ephesians 2, 7. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3. We can't comprehend what kind of glory this is going to be. But even now, we have the hope of his glory and his plan to bring us there. You've got Romans 8 verses 31 to 39 in your notes. Many have that memorized anyway, but think about all that God has done in his love for us, and nothing can remove us from that. This aspect of the truth of the gospel and our salvation points to two more factors of determining its worth. Age. How old is this gospel? You might think 2,000 years because that's when Jesus lived, died, and rose again, but it's older than that. You might think, well, the Old Testament prophesied about it, I guess, Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Old Testament prophets, but it's older than that. You think about the proto-evangelium, the proto-euangelion in, in Genesis 3.15, right? The first time that we understand that there is to be someone who will come, who will, who will bruise the head of the serpent and he will bruise his heel. But it's even older than that. It's older than that because Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. <laughs> How's that for age? It's older than the planet is. It's older than the universe is. God made it. It's so rare. In fact, you can't find it around us or within us or anything in there. God is the divine manufacturer, and it's older than the earth is. Another value factor is uniqueness. How unique is it? Is there any other other thing like it? Can we think of any other religious system or philosophy like this one? Has anybody ever come up with a system that says, here is the standard of what you got to do to get to heaven, and we'll you know, figure out what that is, and we'll tell you what it is. Here's the list of things, and nobody can do any of it. You're all going to hell. Who would invent a system like that, right? That doesn't come from the, what every other religious system says is, we want this wonderful place, 
And here's how to get there, and they're all things that we can do. We're going to get there ourselves. Nobody has invented a religion like this because this is not an invented religion. It came from the mind and the heart of God. It's entirely unique in all the world because the truth is that God is perfect in His holiness. And none of us can match that standard on our own. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's unique and it's exclusive. Nobody would come up with something like this. In fact, that's what the world, part of what the world is reacting against, those exclusivistic claims of Christ, right? So this gospel, the truth about us and, and our salvation in Jesus Christ is priceless because it's, it's older than anything but God himself and it's unique in all of creation. Number three, our salvation is priceless because of its proclaimed good news. The proclaimed good news in verse 12. Those prophets there couldn't figure out the who and the when because were they not studying hard enough? No, we had three different words there piled up on what they were doing, how hard they were working to figure it out. They couldn't figure it out because it wasn't revealed to them. Until verse 12 says, it was revealed to them, it's not for you. <laughs> Old Testament prophet, it's for people in the future. He's, Peter says, it's for you. It has come upon you. God told them in places like Daniel 12, 9, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Or Joel 2, that Peter quotes in Acts 2, in the last days, in those days, this is what's going to happen, right? It was revealed to them. It's like the story of the blind street lamp lighter. There was a blind man who would light the street lamps in England before electricity came about, and they'd go about with a torch and reach up and ignite the lamp. And he felt his way along, and he would feel the heat of the torch to know it was still lit, and he would reach up, and he would hear when it lit, and, and he could feel the heat coming off of the street lamp, so he felt his way along and went to the next one. All the time lighting the street with light that he would never see himself. That's what the Old Testament prophets were doing. They were giving us the light. They were showing it. They were revealing to us what God had said, but they would never see it themselves. They were, they were serving, Peter says, the, the word for deacon. They, they were attending upon, waiting on you, you and I. Notice here in verse 12, it was that same message that was prophesied, but it was picked up by others. Who are they? They're the good news preachers. The, those who came and announced or proclaimed to you the fulfillment of those prophecies. The preachers of good news, the evangelizers, the prophets prophesied it, but others brought the fulfillment to you. These people that came and, and this good news that you're blessed to receive now because it's priceless. Notice that they didn't do it on their own either. The, the prophets the, with the message that they had came from the spirit of Christ in them that was prophesying, right? It came from God himself. These people who came, the good news preachers who came and, and preached this good news to you, they were sent, they were commissioned and empowered also by the same Holy Spirit. Sent from heaven. Peter witnessed the Holy Spirit's work among them. He, he was just amazed when the Holy Spirit worked among the Jewish people. They received the Holy Spirit when they believed the gospel. And then he went out and he saw the same thing happen among Gentile people. He went, whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. Two more factors of worth for us to see in this story, in, in this gospel. The story. What's the story behind it? Is there a story here? It's the most blessed story in the world, right? It, it, because it's true. 
You don't have to embellish this story. You don't have to, you don't have to make changes or there's nothing imaginary about this. You, know, you don't have to have goblins introduced, right? You don't have to have magic introduced. It's, it's a story of love and forgiveness and the good guy wins, right? Jesus wins. It's full of tragedy. It's full of sorrow and difficulty, but Jesus overcomes every difficulty and every sin and every sorrow. He even conquers death itself. Throughout the scripture, the story remains the same. It, it never changes. John 5, 39, Jesus said, all the scriptures are about me. The theme of the scriptures is Jesus. You can see God's work of redemption prophesied and foreshadowed and, and typified throughout the Old Testament and all of it explained and fulfilled in the New Testament. It never changes. Over 1,600 years of the Bible being written, it never changes. God himself thought of it and used it to save many, and he still does today. It's got his autograph all over it. <laughs> the other factor here is the place of origin. Where did the Holy Spirit originate? Who sent these evangelizers? Where did the prophecies originate? The Holy Spirit in heaven. Where did Jesus come from before he came onto the earth? Heaven. None of this came from man. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, this is wisdom that doesn't come from this age. Or from the rulers, the, the smartest people in the world, this didn't come up. They didn't come up with this, right? It's secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. It's no longer secret, but it was. Paul continues there. He says in verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This didn't originate with man, right? This originated in heaven where God is, in his mind and his heart for us. Where would it have come from? He continues in that same passage, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given us the gospel. It originated with God who carried men along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. It, it didn't start with Moses or Abraham. It didn't start with Paul or Peter. It is God breathed, 2 Timothy 3. That's why it's so deep. That's why we'll never be able to study enough and, and understand enough and, and get deeply enough into this. Sometimes we like to dive so deeply in here and we're just barely scratching the surface. It, it, it's, it's eternal. It's an eternal story that originated with God in heaven, not the mind of man. We will never run out of praise to God for what he's done in our salvation. We will never run out of this as a source of happiness and joy in our life for what he's done for us. Finally, Number four, our salvation is priceless because of its personalized value. The personalized value, verse 12. Look at the end here. Things into which angels look. Peter says, you know, speaking of heaven, that's where the angels are. The angels who have longed, they've earnestly desired, they've, the word is coveted without sinning. They've, they've wanted to look into this. They've longed to understood this. The word means to stoop down to get a better to get a better understanding, it's the word that was used of Peter at the tomb of Jesus when he stooped down to, what is going on? I need to understand this. Why don't they understand it? Why, why do angels in the presence of God not understand? They want to look into this because angels are different from us. Angels are not created in the image of God like mankind is, but more importantly, angels have not sinned. The angels that did sin are not in heaven anymore. They're with Satan. They're here 
roaming around in the spiritual warfare that's going around us, right? Their fate is sealed for all of them. Whether, whether they went with Satan or whether they stayed with the Lord, their, their fate is sealed. But because the angels in heaven have not sinned, they cannot know, they cannot experience God as a merciful, gracious, loving Savior. They have nothing to be saved from because they haven't sinned because they've not been allowed to sin. Hebrews 1 explains they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. They're supposed to be serving us. Hebrews 2, it's surely not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps. Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. That again is us. Jesus himself is helping us. But he's not helping the angels. And they're supposed to be helping us. You know, the angels were there when God's judgment came upon mankind. The angels were there at the beginning in creation. They sing His praises. They they exist in His presence. They do His will, His bidding without any kind of hesitation. They never make a mistake in all of that. They see that all of this is happening. They were there to proclaim Jesus' birth. At the end, the angels are going to fly over all of creation proclaiming the gospel, but they don't get it themselves. They themselves cannot fully experience it. They have so much revelation, so much knowledge. They see so much, and, but they don't get it. Who can? Who can look into this and understand it and experience it? You can. You who are made in God's image. It is for you that God sent his son to live through every kind of temptation and persecution and death so that he could rise again and save you. Luke 15, Jesus says, there is rejoicing in heaven when you do that, when you repent. The angels even sing to God praises when you repent and believe, even though they don't understand it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief, right? I'm the, I'm the number one worst sinner on the planet. He says that's a, that's a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance statement. This is personal for us, that we deserve God's wrath as sinners. We deserve to be under His wrath forever, but we're not because of His grace that has come to us, His mercy. The two more factors of value here, condition. What is the condition of this? Has God changed? Has the gospel changed at all? We deserve His wrath, but in His mercy, He has prepared a way for us to be forgiven. By faith, if you receive that and turn from sin to live for Him, He will save you. None of that has ever changed. Whether you were looking ahead to the Messiah that God would bring and you couldn't figure out how it was going to work out, or whether you're looking ahead now because you know He's returning and you can't figure out how that's going to happen. We believe in him by faith. If you receive that and turn from sin to live for him, he will save you. None of that has changed. That has remained the same. It's the same truth, the same message since the fall in the Garden of Eden. The Old Testament looked forward to it. We look backward to it. It has been preserved so that it is in perfect condition after more than 2,000 years. What's more, it never fades away as we saw in verse 4. Right? It's kept in heaven. It's guarded by God, and it never fades. It never gets defiled. There's no restoration work, no edits or updates. It's not in beta form. There's no 2.0 coming, right? It's perfect, and it stays perfect forever. Angels long to look into these things. The other factor is market. <laughs> there is no market among the angels for the gospel. They don't need it. But among mankind, every one of us needs this gospel, not just one time. 
but every day of our life. The demand is high, you know, in terms of supply and demand. <laughs> the demand is high, but the supply is short. It's rare, remember? There's, it's only found in one place. Even if angels can't understand, every one of us needs it. And considering the forces of those supply and demand, there's only one place where we can get it. So what would you give for your soul, the whole world? What would it profit to gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And it may cost your life, it may cost your comfort, it may cost some, some things to enjoy here on earth, but you will gain eternity with the Lord. The gospel, the, the salvation that Peter has been talking about here, it more than meets every factor of value or worth that you could ever imagine. There's no exhausting it. There's no completing it. There's nothing boring about this. There's nothing temporary about it. This is how we can cling to God now forever, now and forever, no matter what happens, no matter what doesn't happen. So we need to appreciate it more. We need to value it more highly. Don't treat it so lightly. Don't treat it so familiarly that it just becomes, that's yeah, just there, something that's always there. And don't treat all of these other passing things so importantly. Application, what do we take with us? Re-evaluate your salvation. What's the value that you assign to your salvation, to the gospel? Re-evaluate that, reassess it, reappraise it. <laughs> However it makes sense to you to put in that blank, whatever you want to put in there, keep growing in the truth, keep reading the, the scriptures, studying to find out, being careful in your study, but never lose the awe and the wonder of God's grace that has come to us. The more you realize the value of the gospel, the more comfort and joy it will bring and the more praise it will produce in you the more joy and the more praise it will produce. It, there's more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever find out. Ephesians 2 says, in the ages to come, the eons and eons to come, God's going to keep showing us the amazing riches of his kindness toward us. Father, we praise you and we thank you for this truth. We thank you, God, that your gospel is real and true and it God, it's not something that we can find here. It's not something that we can make up. No person has made this up, God. It, it comes from you. Lord, it, it is your message of truth and love, God, to redeem humanity that you made in your own image. And Father, our flesh is weak, and, and so many times we rebel against your will. So, so often Satan is, is struggling against you. Sin in us is fighting against you. The world wants nothing to do with you, but God, we want everything to do with you. God, that faith, that trust, that love only comes when you start working in us. So God, I pray that you would do that among us. And anyone here who doesn't know you, Father, I pray that they would come to the end of themselves, that they would see that happiness and contentment and satisfaction doesn't come from here. Lord, that they cannot overcome the sin that has separated them from your love and your grace and your kindness, your mercy. Lord, your, your word tells us that it is your kindness, your goodness that leads us to salvation. I pray that none of us would take for granted how good and kind and patient you are with us. God, I pray that you would give us the strength, the ability, the boldness, Lord, to believe this gospel, to live this gospel, Lord, to share it with other people. 
Father, we pray this not so that we can be known, so that we can be recognized, but so that Jesus can be recognized, so that the gospel can go out and that he would be glorified. Lord, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. God, we pray that you would help us to be about the Great Commission so that people will do that now. We want your glory to be known. We want you to be known as holy and just and righteous and perfect and gracious and merciful. We praise you for this salvation. We pray that you would help us to live it out more every day for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.